Support for this podcast comes from Stella Artois. This summer, enjoy the life Artois. You can experience it anywhere, from your patio to the tidal basin. All it takes is being present, being there, with the people you love and a cold Stella Artois in hand. Wherever you are, you're never too far from the life Artois. Stella Artois. Please enjoy responsibly. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 157, Stalin Bio, Part 3. Last time, teenage Iosef Soso Jugashvili had entered the Tiflis Seminary School with thoughts of getting through its six-year course and then seeing what he could make of his future, in whatever capacity, as a priest or schoolteacher. But, as we have also seen, the seminary was already, and had been, a battleground of ideas and Russian loyalty. Soso did well, at first, in his grades. He sang in the choir, but was also exposed to ideas, bigger ideas, than the church wanted or found offensive and disloyal. Soso, like every other boy, soon-to-be man on the planet, had looked up to older men, First, there was his father, Beso, who had much to admire, except when he was drunk and violent. Then, there was the family friend, the older Soso, who had had some success in life, had been able to put his own sons through school, and had been willing to help out our Soso with his school bills. Was that because he and Iosef's mother, Keke, had been intimate? We will never know. Either way, the boy was now in school, which is where he met other boys, older boys, who had already suffered at the hands of their priest teachers, and specifically their priest handlers, the men whose duty was to simply watch over their charges' mortal souls. And yet, in their application of said duty came clashes. Students and former students, like Lado Ketskhuvili, who had already been kicked out and was doing what he could to right the wrongs of social injustice and the suppression of Georgian nationality. Naturally, the students in rebellion broke the rules. Forbidden texts were smuggled in, hidden within the boys' rooms. Ideas, again, that were forbidden were discussed and debated. It's possible, but highly unlikely, that Soso could have steered clear of this activity. He was a curious person, who was used to satisfying his curiosity. He was well-read and always wanted to know more. It wasn't as if the students were sneaking in pictures of women. No, the contraband, often found by the inspectors, were books, with ideas that were considered revolutionary. Soso himself was found to possess, in November of 1896, Victor Hugo's Toilers of the Sea, and his other work, 93, concerning the counter-revolution in France. Besides these, Soso had taken away from him books by Zola, Balzac, and Thackeray, and many works by Georgian authors. The following year, 1897, the ever more disillusioned teenagers would be found to be reading a French Darwinist text that spoke out against Orthodox theology. Again, these confiscated articles were not smut, and some were not banned by Russian authorities, but most certainly were 
by the priests, trying to forge these boys into future priests. And it must be said that these priests were not simply sadistic, trying to crush spirits. They were mostly celibate, faithful, prayed constantly, and tried to avoid the temptations of the world. They had been through the seminary school themselves, had suffered, and knew it was just a phase, the way of the world. What's more, the seminary schools all over Russia gave the country its intellectuals, its scientists, its priests, and in that capacity, the leader of the people's souls. A very serious business indeed. In fact, one such former seminarian, now physiologist, Ivan Pavlov, would form the reflex theory, using a dog. Another, the son of a priest, Dmitry Mendelev, would invent the periodic table. These boys, if they made it through the school, would find themselves imbued with self-discipline, a drive for hard work, and, it must be said, a sense of moral superiority. Of course, the students, the victims of all this, did not see it that way. They were being attacked, their possessions, their very thoughts and ideas attacked, their bodies punished, as one form of correction was to be placed in solitary confinement. As for those students who were Georgian, their nationality was also under attack. As Sosa went through his first three years, he became more distanced from the church and its teachings, certainly from the priests. He joined secret circles that smuggled in forbidden texts and spoke of ideas that the church considered none of the students nor their business. It also seems that Soso's determined personality was being challenged, and it did not like this oppression, this spying, which he, ironically, spoke against years later. In essence, this pressure cooker that was the seminary was unwittingly creating radicals in general, and in particular was forcing Soso's determination to win the battle at all costs. It would also cause him to look beyond the school's wrongs and to think of his native Georgia. And, if it's possible, for a moment, to forget where Soso, come Stalin, ends up in life, just because he grew away from the church and its teachings by reading works like Ernest René's Aesthetic Life of Jesus, or finding the many discrepancies in the Bible, that does not mean he automatically had to become a revolutionary. He may have finished his six-year course, though not at the top of his class, and become a teacher, or as he had one time desired, a town intellectual. But that was not to be, as Soso came into contact with certain people who lived in Georgia at this time. For example, during the summer break of 1897, Soso stayed with a friend, Mikhail Miko Devatashvili. There he got to see, up close, the life of the peasants. Specifically, the effects of the serf emancipation. The peasants were free from their masters, but still owed them redemption payments. This solution had been worked out by the Russian Empire. Yet now the peasants found themselves attacked and robbed regularly, by bandits who came from their mountain hideouts. And as the masters were no longer responsible for their serfs, they were not required to protect them. Yet, in one of the greatest ironies of history, 
The children of the nobility, now having no peasants to control, gave up their parents' estates. It's not like they were going to also inherit the workers to make the land go. So they fled to the cities, where they saw firsthand the lives of these poor souls, and took up their cause. Thus the Russian Empire, who thought they were doing good, now had another group of people resisting them. The only ones who truly benefited were the bandits. So, young Stalin's political awakening evolved around Georgian landlords who oppressed the area's peasants. Suddenly, the maturing boy who was giving up the idea of becoming a priest now had thoughts of becoming a village scribe or elder for those less educated to come to. But even here, there was a political slant to it. The reason for this was his own temperament coming to the fore. Soso, with his education, and probably not coming from the lowest rung of the local ladder, craved leadership. But for now, that leadership status could only be obtained at the seminary, specifically of the secret circle he was in. Yet there were others, some older than himself, that were on the same trajectory which put the well-read boys at odds. Soso and Dev Dariani, another seminarian, who were good friends, now clashed for the top position. Yet, though Stalin was older than the other boys of his class, coming to the school relatively late for his age, found that time was on his side. Dev Dariani left the school in May of 1898 for the Russian Empire's Dorpat, now Yurev University, in the Baltic region, which left the young Jugashvili now in charge of the circle. And with this leadership change came a change in the direction and focus of the group. Soso's thoughts were more of a practical nature, as in what could be done to help the local peasants, as opposed to adding to the theoretical work already being disseminated and debated. Much later, another student, the other Soso, would write of Jugashvili at this time. He was a good friend, so long as one submitted to his imperious will. So, the maturing and ever more practical Soso, who had wanted to be a priest, then scribe, and now political leader, though only locally, then came under the sway of an even more radical former student, Lado Ketshovili. Lado had already earned his bona fides as a revolutionary when he came into Soso's life, having been kicked out of the Tiflis Seminary for leading a student strike in 1893. The slightly older young man had spent that summer working for Chavchavezda's newspaper Iveria, reporting on the post-emancipation peasant troubles of the Gori area. Yet still desiring the life that an education could give him, Lado as the law allowed, later enrolled in the seminary at Kiev. But in just under two years, he was kicked out of there as well, for being found with criminal literature. Per regulations, he was deported back to his native village and kept under police surveillance. Behaving himself for a time, he was then allowed, in the fall of 1897, to travel to Tiflis to work at a printer shop to learn typesetting. Of course, the young radical had not turned over a new leaf, 
Even before he got that job, he had joined a group of Georgian Marxists. The typesetting job was nothing more than his desire to learn how to publish revolutionary pamphlets. And Lado knew the game well enough by now to know where additional adherents could be obtained at the Tiflis Seminary. He doubted very much that the priest had changed, and so was sure to find many unhappy, oppressed, but well-educated students seeking a change of the system, or perhaps just revenge. Using his well-established reputation, Lado took the impressive new secret circle leader, Soso, under his wing. As expected, the younger student was simply focused on a better life and fairer treatment of the Georgian peasants. But Lado would knowingly lead Soso from that rather vague path to one of Marxism. Support for this podcast comes from CDW and Dell Technologies. At CDWG, we get that migrating your agency to a hyper-converged infrastructure is challenging. Like me switching to decaf. Gotta do it, don't wanna do it, but gotta do it. Whoa, slow down, friend. CDWG's experts can help simplify your transition from legacy to hyper-converged infrastructure with Dell Technologies solutions that offer speed and agility. Do it, do it. Have you done it? Is it done yet? Why isn't it done yet? IT orchestration by CDWG. People who get it. Find out more at cdwg.com slash Tech. As stated previously, Marxism was only one of the many ideas or reactions to come from the French Revolution which began in 1789. And as such, it had many authors with their particular twists. Some believed that a father-like approach was the way to go. The employer of the workers would pay higher than historical wages, cut hours when possible, build schools for the workers' children, and provide housing. Indeed, the idea was that work could be used to raise up a person, not demean them with strictness. Others wanted the clearly needed social engineering to be under public, not private works. Society would be based around rational and just laws. Still others wanted no state at all, but instead small areas controlling the means and benefits of labor. But Karl Marx, along with Friedrich Engels, both sons of well-off men, didn't believe that anything had to be crafted or created. To them, socialism was simply the outcome of a process that capitalism, with its greed and self-interest, would generate. For that very greed would cause the owners of produced goods to always seek new markets. And that, as technology, of the kind Marx thought of was still a few decades away, would drive down the need for workers, or at least lower their wages. The put-upon workers would then rise up and use their sheer numbers to take control of the process and its benefits. For capitalism demanded that everyone be out for themselves. This, according to Marx, could not but help create tension between the classes. For how could a system where all that mattered was the individual possibly endure or work for the betterment of most of society? No, capitalism was but a step a necessary step, to be sure, for the next stage. First, according to Marx, there had been feudalism, which was currently being replaced by capitalism. But as that was sure not to last, then could come socialism, 
where the needs of the many were no longer overshadowed by the control of the powerful few. Yet even socialism was not the end result of this process. And this was one of the areas in which Marx and Engels differed from other socialists. Just as the bourgeoisie had tired of feudalism and brought about capitalism, at times violently, the proletariat would soon tire of not gaining from capitalism and thus push it aside for communism. The class struggle was the key. To Marx, this was an eventuality. There would always be more of the have-nots than the haves. The key, again, was the most put-upon class at any given time. And now, and in the coming future, that was the struggling proletariat. They just needed to be organized. Only under communism, where everyone together owned everything, could there be enough for all. No more starving, and no more class struggle. The evolution would stop. Thus, we come to the end of this podcaster's knowledge of Marxism. But there would be others to take up the cause after Marx's death in 1883 while in London. Suffice it to say, according to Marx's theory, there had to be a capitalist revolution before the socialist one came. Of course, Marxism did not exist in a vacuum. Others had other ideas, or tweaked Marxism. But Georgi Pletkanov, the father of Marxism in Russia, simply but effectively spread the message. Capitalism had to come first before the proletariat revolution. There was nothing special about Russia that would allow it to skip this step. By the 1890s, a Russian translation of Das Kapital, Marx's three-volume work, made its way deep into Russia, which the empire's censors, perhaps not understanding it fully, allowed, as it was seen as a scientific work. At the time, there was some one million Russian proletariat and 80 million peasants. But the idea of Marxism had come to Russia long before the translation did, and obviously found favor with the masses. Now, and this may sound self-destructive, the small Russian proletariat had to help enough of the peasant class to rise to their status, which would then fuel the next step, the destruction of capitalism and the rise of socialism. And, making a very long story short, Marxism had made its way into Russia through Polish exiles into Georgia. Soon copies of the Communist Manifesto, translated into Georgian, would arrive at the Tiflis Seminary and into Soso's hands. Due to the influence of Marxist thought, the Tiflis railway workers left their jobs in 1887 and 1889. They were one of the few large-scale working groups and thus could have any effect on the area. The vast majority of craftsmen who had the skills that mattered, and there were some 9,000 of them, were grouped only in one or two-man operations. Thus, unless they organized, could not make much of an impact. The railway workers again abandoned their jobs in protest in December of 1898, due to the organization of Lado and other agitators. At the time, Soso was still at the seminary, but had already been given guidance and a number of workers to lecture by Lado. 
besides his own secret circle at the school. Soso spoke to the workers of the mechanics of the capitalist system and the need to engage in political struggle to improve the workers' position. As this was the title of his speech, one can only hope he used small words and simple examples to these uneducated men. Bellato would do more than just teach the still seminarian how to rouse the workers into action. He would also bring him into contact with other more established revolutionaries. One such was No Giordiani. Sometime in 1898, Soso paid a visit to Giordiani with the equivalent of a letter of introduction. He told the older man, I have decided to quit the seminary to propagate your ideas among the workers. Giordiani questioned the young man and was not impressed, telling him to stay in school and learn more of Marxism. That could have not inspired the sincere and well-read young man any less. But it did fire something within him, perhaps to prove that he was not simply a semi-well-off boy looking for trouble. Soon after, Jugashvili joined the third group of Georgian Marxists, as Lado had done previously. Attempting to better organize itself, the third group, and there was nothing special about them as individuals or as a whole, met in March of 1898 just outside Minsk. The attendees, just nine members and one worker, were forming their first congress, copying the German Social Democratic Workers' Party. But what none of them could know was that this gathering would be the first meeting of the future ruling party of the Soviet Union. As this was the year of the 50th anniversary of Marx and Engels' Communist Manifesto, the three-day meeting allowed the members to draft their own manifesto, which denounced the bourgeoisie. The idea was to perfect the document and spread it throughout Russia. Support for this podcast comes from State Farm. With surprisingly great rates, State Farm is the real deal when it comes to home and car insurance. State Farm agents are in your neighborhood, ready to help personalize your insurance. And you can manage your coverage, pay your bill, or even file a claim right from your phone with the State Farm mobile app. Visit statefarm.com today to get a great rate without sacrificing great service. That's statefarm.com. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And though the Minsk meeting had been undetected by the Tsarist political police, its members were certainly known to the authorities, which arrested most of the members soon afterward. Later, Vladimir Uyanov, a.k.a. Lenin, would hear of the meeting when he was in eastern Siberia during a three-year stay of internal exile. He had already spent 15 months in prison for doing what the third group were attempting to do now, spread revolutionary pamphlets. Well, that, and kill the Tsar. But how could this pathetic, far-away group one day rule Russia? A partial answer is that it was the only meeting to be successfully held before the Russian Revolution. It seems that, for all the talk going around, these men and former seminary students were doing more than just talking. But Lenin was not to be left out or outdone. Soon after his release, and then in Stuttgart, Lenin and other prominent socialist exiles published a Russian-language newspaper, 
which aimed to bring together all of Russia's revolutionaries, centered around, of course, a Marxist program. The paper was called Iskra, or Spark, as in, from a spark, a fire will ignite. And now a game of Commercial Chicken, brought to you by Progressive, where we see how long Flo can go without talking about insurance. Ready? Go. So the, the weather is just all over the place lately, right? One day it's hot, and the next day it's, uh, it's windy for a while. It's like, make up your mind already. Drivers who switch to Progressive can save big. Okay, you win. We can't help but save customers money. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates.